Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Today's message is entitled Blindside, and um, hopefully as I make my remarks this morning, it will all become more obvious to you. In the past, uh, at Father's Day, I have been known to really get on the guys. I mean, it's a uh, uh, it's one of those things that I never do to the ladies. We always honor the ladies on, Father, on Mother's Day and tell them how wonderful they are, and they are. Um, but we don't ever, I mean, it's, it's like, it's the last thing you want to do if you're a preacher is to bring the ladies together for Mother's Day and then tee off on them. It's just not going to happen. So, but, but guys, more than, on more than one occasion, have come on Father's Day and, and preachers just tee off on them, and I've been guilty of that myself. Uh, it's a double standard, guys. Just get used to it, okay? That's just the way it is. Um, I'm not going to say that I'll never do that again, <clears throat> but I will tell you that I'm not going to do that today. Today's not one of those days where I'm going to tee off on the fellas. I, instead, today, guys, I want to encourage you. I want to prepare you uh, because you are important, and your job is important. Uh, your job in life is important because... Both the roles of men and women are difficult, and, and what we're called to be and what we're needed to be, uh, our roles, they're, they're very difficult. It, it amazes me how little boys and little girls grow up to become um, men and women with all the responsibilities and, and pressures that go along with those various roles. Um, and ladies, I know full well that you, you, you've got your own special stuff that you've got to deal with, and you've heard me say, and I believe wholeheartedly that... I don't know where I'd be without my mom. I mean, she's been a, a tremendously huge influence in my life and, and uh, just a beautiful woman and a beautiful part of my life. But, but today, I want to focus in on the guys and what we're expected to be and what, what we're called to be and the unique pressures that come with what we do. We are called to discipleship. We are called to leadership. We are called to servanthood. We are to be the example. We are to be the provider of wisdom. We are to be the protector the provider, the teacher. Um, we go last. We sacrifice first. We encourage. In a football game, the quarterback is vitally important to what happens. In fact, the quarterback is really the most important guy on the team. Uh, so much falls to him. So much depends on him. And in any uh, professional draft, if there is a good quarterback to be had, nine times out of ten, he is going to be selected first in the draft because every NFL team is looking for a, 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 what we would call a franchise quarterback, a quarterback that you can pin it all on, a, a guy that, that, um, you know, that it all comes to rest on that can handle it. And, and what I'm saying this morning is that dad is that quarterback. Uh, moms, you, you play a vitally important role. You are irreplaceable. You do so many things that, that we can't even explain or even half the time we don't even know half what you're doing behind the scenes that make things go and make things happen. Um, you have something called the intangibles, moms. You, you, you have, you're, you're like a, a Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is a guy that's played football for the University of Florida for four years and um, is, has been a very winning quarterback, but now it's time for him to play professional football and there are quite a number of people, people who spend a lot of time in the NFL, quarterbacks especially, are saying things like, Tim Tebow doesn't have what it takes to play quarterback in the NFL. 
Um, they say things like he doesn't, um, his arm mechanics aren't right, and he doesn't read defenses fast enough, and he hasn't played in a pro system, so he's not ready for, for an NFL schedule, and he's not ready for NFL competition. The game moves faster, the guys are bigger, the schemes are more complex. And, and yet, the Denver Broncos thought enough of Tim Tebow to move up in the first round to select him somewhere in the 20s. I want to say 27 or 28, something like that. But they moved up to be able to take him in the draft. Obviously, they see something in Tim Tebow. What everybody is willing to say about this young man is that he has the intangibles. Well, what is that? I mean, what, exactly what is that? Well, for Tim Tebow, first and foremost, he's a Christian young man. And he is a, a person of very high character. And as you and I both know, athletes aren't always known for real high character. So if you can find a guy like a Tim Tebow who is a proven winner in college, somebody is willing to take a chance on a guy like that because of the intangibles. And mom, that's what you have. That's, that's kind of how you are. You, you're a winner. You get things done. You, you, you make it happen. And a lot of times it's behind the scenes. And, and we value you and we honor you. But today is Dad's Day. Today is the day we talk about fathers and, and their unique um, role that they have in life. Um, I want to talk today about dads in terms of them being the, the quarterback of the family or of the team. There's so much that is expected these days of an NFL quarterback. He is the leader on and off the field. I mean, every, every team wants their quarterback to represent them not only in the huddle and not only on the field, but as he moves about and as he goes on talk shows, as he does interviews for radio, as he does all these different things, they want a quarterback who can represent them and become really the face of the franchise for the team. Uh, he has to be smart. There's a lot of things that an NFL quarterback um, has to be able to do. The, the, in Sports Illustrated, back when the football season was going on, they, they had the cover of a, of a, I think it was Peyton Manning. I mean, maybe they did a regional thing where they put different quarterbacks on in different parts of the country, but in our part of the region, it was Peyton. And the, the caption was, quarterback, the toughest job in sports. Well, why is quarterback the toughest job in sports? The article, if you went on to read it, talked about all the things that an NFL quarterback has to do. He's got to memorize a playbook. He's got to be able to know not only what his responsibilities are, but what the responsibilities are of everybody else on his team. He, he has to keep in mind what's going on with the play clock. He's got to know what's going on with the game clock. He's got to be listening to what's happening in his ears with a, a coach. He's got to understand what his players are going through and, and what um, the unique things they're bringing back to the huddle. He's got his own aches and pains he has to deal with. He's got coverages. He's got blitz schemes. There's little nuances of the game. There are so many things that are, that are being funneled through his mind at any one time that, that his mind, really, the computer of his mind is really being put to the ultimate test. He's got to be strong. He's got to have a strong will. He's going to read things on Monday morning, people telling him that he's not very good or people telling him that he didn't do a very good job. He should have thrown it to this guy instead of that guy. People who haven't played a down of football in their life will critique him on Monday morning and tell him what he needs to do. I always get a kick out of those guys that call into radio. He has to have a strong back. He has to have big shoulders. He has to be able to, to take an awful lot of stuff. He's got a, a, a lot heaped on him. He's got to be tough. He's got to have a strong arm. He's got to be able to make throws um, down and out in places that only his receiver can catch it. He's got to put touch on the ball. He's got to be able to throw the ball hard. He's got to know the difference between a floating pass and a pass that needs to get there right now. 
He's got to be able to see a defensive guy and know just exactly how much touch to put on the ball to get it just beyond his fingertips so that it will come to rest in the hands of his receiver. Being a quarterback is extremely difficult work. He's got to be a tough guy. Um, Last year, Alex Smith, who is the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, was sacked. That means he was thrown to the ground by a big, huge defensive lineman like you see on that picture. He was sacked 55 times. I read a thing online this week uh, as I was preparing for this, and I looked up, uh, was looking for the physics of when defensive end meets quarterback. I wanted to see some, I wanted a comparison. I wanted to know what that feels like. I heard somebody say one time, to play football is basically to line yourself up against your garage door and throw yourself against it for 90 times in the middle of a freezing cold day, and that's what it's like to play football. Well, this particular article I read the other day said that Um, to be sacked by a man the size of William the Refrigerator Perry. You remember him that played for the Bears? You remember the fridge? They said that to be sacked by a man the size of William the Refrigerator Perry is the equivalent of having a baby elephant sit on you. Okay, so just imagine, imagine you're Alex Smith and 55 times last season a baby elephant sat on you. I mean, you've got to be tough that's uh, that's not easy that's 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 hard work you have to be part psychologist because you've got teammates that are all over the map in terms of what they're saying and some of them are crybabies and some of them are trying to be macho and some of them are rookies and they're scared to death and others are you know their their head's not in the game you've got to as the quarterback you've got to know what's going on with all your players and bring them all together you've got to be part bulldog you've got there's got to be a part of you that just refuses to give up that no matter what the game looks like you keep playing the game you keep playing the game you have to be part duct tape and hold your team together in adversity when, when everything looks like it's going the wrong direction. You, you have to be chemist and, and mix all these different personalities. You have to be physicist and have the brain of a guy that is able to take all this different stuff, process it quickly, make snap decisions, good decisions, that, that, that really the outcome of the game hinges sometimes on one snap decision. One bad interception and the game's over. One throw to the wrong guy. If you, if you throw the ball to the guy that's not quite over the first down marker, you, you, you haven't made the right play and it could cost you the game. Guys, if you're the quarterback of your team, what I'm trying to say is you are important. That's why you are a target. That's why this morning every man in here is a target. The key word for this morning the word I want you to walk out of here with this morning is the word awareness I want you to leave here today men just being aware of what is at stake being aware of of what's going on around you being aware of who is after you and what what the goals are and and what you have to protect and what you've got um, to deal with I saw in uh, a video a couple months ago I guess that um I wanted to show to you this morning, this kind of will just make the point that I'm trying to make about uh, awareness. We all need to be more aware. Now, this is a little dark, but I think it'll still, I think the point will, will be made. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make?
the answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, I want to go back and rewind and see the first clip, right? Because you don't believe that the moonwalking bear actually went through the frame, do you? Trust me. Trust me. I'm telling you the truth. He did go through the frame. I went back and looked because I did the same thing. When I saw it, I thought, no, 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 no. There's no way I didn't see a moonwalking bear, okay? There's no way I didn't see that. I was so proud of myself because I got 13 passes, right? I mean, like I was all over 13 passes. I didn't miss a beat when it came to that. And then the guy talks about the moonwalking bear, and I'm like, what moonwalking bear? What is he talking about? He was in there. He really was in there. Guys, we have got to be aware. We get so laser-focused sometimes on what's going on in a specific part of our world or what's happening in, in some area that's really important to us, that we cannot be as aware as we need to be of our surroundings. We cannot always be aware of everything that comes into play for us. Um, great coaches understand this. Um, I, I've seen time and again great coaches who, who have prepared their teams in ways that I would not have ever thought to prepare a team. Uh, and most of you know I grew up in northern Kentucky, so I'm a UK fan, and I know that's not, you know, real popular for you guys, but, and, but I say that because what I'm about to say, you'll understand how hard it is for me to give credit to another coach, because I'm going to talk about Coach Krzyzewski at Duke, because in Kentucky we believe you can't even spell Duke without UK, so, so you, you like that? You can use that, that's free, that was totally free, didn't cost you a thing. But Coach Krzyzewski really is, and I can say this as a Kentucky fan, he really truly is a great coach. And I've watched him win games, improbable games. I've watched him win games against Kentucky when, when uh, he was, had his team um, as prepared as I've ever seen a coach. And he just seems to have this knack for communicating leadership skills and, and, and um, uh, his players just always seem to play with poise. And when the other team seems to fall apart, Coach K's team always seems to find a way to, to win. And I've seen him inter interviewed, and they'll ask him about a specific play at the end, and he'll say things like, well, that's a play we've practiced, or that's a situation that we've prepared for. And I, I think to myself, man, I, if I was the coach, I would never imagine a situation like that. And yet here's a coach who planned for things like that. The great Bill Walsh, who was the coach of the San Francisco 49ers back in the late 80s, who just, uh, that team was so difficult for anybody to beat was one of those coaches who just seemed to have his players ready to play at a different level. And I watched him play my team one time, and they won a game in a very improbable situation. And it was all because the coach had prepared his players for things that they might not have expected that they were going to encounter. Coach Dungy, I've heard him talk about, you know, at the end of a game, the, the, the uh, 
announcer will stick the microphone in his face and you know ask about the end of the game and coach Dungey will say things like well you know we practice for that we 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 practice for scenarios just like that and I think to myself man I would never practice for that I, I can't even envision that ever happening in a game and yet the good coaches always seem to to be prepared for those kind of things because they're aware because they they they're looking around and they they don't just get focused on shooting or just on defense they they think about the whole game and everything that can unfold and they prepare their teams accordingly now if you know i'm a uk fan you know what i'm about to say next really pains me to say okay because i'm going to talk about coach knight because coach knight doesn't like uk and we really don't like coach knight very much but I'm going to say this. I have always admired uh, Bob Knight's ability at the end of a game to refrain from calling timeout. When you get down to 15 seconds, 12, 10 seconds in crunch time and there's a rebound, I don't know how many times I've watched a Bob Knight coach team and he refuses to call timeout at the end of those games. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not, but here's his philosophy on timeouts at the end of games. He says, I have, I'm so confident in the way I've prepared my players that they will know what I want them to do, that for me to call a timeout gives the other team a, an advantage I don't want them to have. I don't want them to be able to get their head together. I don't want them to be able to talk about what's going to happen next. My team knows what I want from them in those last several seconds, so I don't call timeout. That is a coach who is very, very aware of his circumstances and has prepared his team to be aware at the end of the game. So, um, you know, as much as it pains me to give him his props, I kind of have to at that point. Peter's warning to men in the New Testament, to old men and, and younger men in the New Testament, reinforces this idea of awareness. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, Peter's warning is, is both to young and old men and uh, it's a very sobering reminder in the, in the New Testament of the adversary that we have. And I think that what happens for us guys is we go through our life not really aware of the adversary we have. We do not understand that we, we are stalked, that we are prey, that we have someone who wants to hurt us, take us down, take us out. Do you understand that there is an enemy that you have that will not rest until he can do all he can to injure you, to injure those around you, to do something that takes you out of the game in such a way that it affects people around you? Um, you need to understand, men, what the circumstances are this morning. You need to understand that you are flawed, that you are prone to sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You live on a cursed planet, and our enemy, the Bible says, roams and rules the earth, and his sole purpose is looking for those people, according to Peter, that he can devour. He uses terminology that is is uh, frightening terminology really he calls him a roaring lion and he says that his goal is that that as he prowls his goal is to devour us i have a, a, an image that i want to show you that I, I hope will stay with you for the rest of the week as you think about your blind side this morning let's sh- let's show that picture i want you to take a good look at that can you imagine being out in the wild looking over your shoulder and see that that's what you face spiritually every day of your life men 
There is, a, there is an enemy, and his sole goal and purpose is to do what that wants to do to its prey. Wants to track it down, wants to hunt it down, wants to sink those big teeth into it, drag it off, and eat it. Okay? Guys, you're incredibly important to your families. You're incredibly important to our church. You're incredibly important to the organization that you work for. You're important to your kids. You're important to your wife. He stalks. He hides. He waits. He's prowling. And his goal, according to Peter, is he's roaming, looking for someone that he can devour. But why? Why, why does the devil want to devour dads? I mean, what is it with dads? What does it profit him to destroy dads? Well, to begin with, you have to understand that the devil hates anything that is precious to the heart of God. And if anything is precious to the heart of God, the family is precious to God's heart. God cares deeply about what happens to the family. God cares deeply about moms and dads and what they do with their kids. He cares deeply about a family unit that is intact and able to do uh, great things together. The family... Um, I think it's no coincidence that as the family has declined over the last couple of generations, I don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, that our commitment and our belief and our, our, you know, how our country looks at God has also decreased over those same uh, generations. I, I don't think that's an accident. I, I went through and I tried to look for some statistics to give you to try and make my point that dads are very important. Now again, moms, we know you're important. I mean, we can't make it without you. But I, I, I looked for some things specific to dads that I wanted to share with you this morning. Let me illustrate with the following statistics. 63% of all suicides come from fatherless homes. 90% of all run, runaways come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger issues, and I said in the first service, wouldn't they all have anger issues? I mean, is there... Is there the happy rapist. I don't know. That just doesn't sound right to me, but 80% of rapists with anger issues come from fatherless homes. 85% of children with behavioral problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescents and chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Daughters of single parents without a father involved are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers, 71% more likely to have children as teenagers, 64% more likely to have premarital birth, have a premarital birth, and 92% more likely to get divorced themselves. Children with involved fathers are 40% less likely to repeat a grade, and they are 70% less likely to drop out of school. They are more likely to get A's. They are more likely to enjoy school and be involved in curricular activities. Adolescent girls raised in a two-parent home with an involved father is significantly less likely to be sexually active than girls raised without involved fathers. Dads, you are up against an adversary who wants to make you one of these statistics. He wants to do this to your family. He wants to sink his teeth into you, drag you off, and devour you. Because if he can do that, if he can weaken you, he weakens the family. You're important. You are needed. 
it is vital that you understand that you've got a vulnerable backside and you've got a prowling lion who wants to take you down, wants to hurt you, wants to hurt what is precious to God. He's seeking to devour you. How will he do it? Well, there are at least two things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. First of all, he wants to dilute us. He wants to dilute us. He wants he doesn't want you to be strong in your faith. He wants you to compromise. It's okay with him if you go to church on Sunday. It's perfectly fine. In fact, he, he rather likes the idea that you go to church on Sunday because when you go to church, you feel like you got a little bit of God in you and you feel kind of strong and you feel like a Christian on Sunday and you get this false sense that everything is okay. And so he's okay with you going to church on Sunday. He just doesn't want you praying on Monday. He's okay with you going to church on Sunday as long as he can get you to have sex with your girlfriend or someone else on Friday. He's okay with you going to church on Sunday as long as he can get you drunk on Wednesday. What, what, what the devil would say is, I will trade one for six. I'll give you one day to go to church if you'll give me the other six days. You can pretend to be a Christian all you want on Sunday as long as you'll do what I want you to do throughout the rest of the week. You just compromise the rest of the week, and I'll make that trade every time. He wants us diluted. Can you imagine the difference in our churches if dads were not diluted? If, if, can you imagine what would happen if dads, and I'm not suggesting that we have dads in here that don't take their faith seriously. I'm suggesting that we probably have some. I'm suggesting that probably in a place where, where only you know about, you, you know whether or not you really are taking your faith seriously, and you know whether or not what I'm saying right now has direct application to you. And I'm just asking a question. Have you ever considered what would happen in your family if you ever finally fully took a hold of the reins and said, I'm going to get serious about my faith? I am going to be a person that my kids can depend on to pray for them. I am going to be a person that my kids can count on to be the man that they need me to be. I am going to be the husband that my father, my, my wife wants me to be. What would happen if, if we, we really woke up, guys, and we took seriously our faith and we did more with it than just come to church on Sunday? I don't know what your favorite... Um, summertime drink is i i am rather partial to an ice cold coke poured over a tall glass of a, a tall glass with filled with ice right i mean filled to the brim a hot summer day i love to have an ice cold coke poured over ice there's something kind of there's a party that happens in my mouth when the carbonation and the unique taste of coke um, and it's ice cold, and, it, and specifically with certain kinds of foods, pizzas and burgers and things like that, and you, you, you're eating that meal, and, and then you get a good sip of Coke, and it's got, that, it's got that bite, you know what I mean? It's got that, when you put it in your, there's, there's, the, Coke has a distinctive thing that happens in your mouth. It's like, hello, I'm here. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you know me, you, you won't be surprised to know that I've poured myself big tall glasses of coke and then forgotten that i've poured my big tall glass of coke gotten involved in something else got to watching television watching a game and forget that i poured a coke 
and it's still on the counter. Or I, you know, heard something and left for a little bit, come back 15, 20, 25 minutes later to discover that this beautiful ice-cold Coke poured over a tall glass of ice has now melted down. There's very little ice in it, and it's just kind of sitting there saying, are you still going to drink me? And you know as well as I do that if you're a dad and your kids see that, you can't pour it out and pour you a new one, right? Because that's just not allowed. Because then you're wasteful and you don't want to teach your kids that it's okay to be wasteful. So unless you do it when they're not looking and they get another one, I don't know. But, but I, have, I have on occasion poured myself a Coke that I didn't drink right away. Only to come back later and discover that it's been sitting there. And you know, you can drink that Coke. It's really a watered down, nasty version of its true self. You can drink that, and it'll even slake your thirst if you're really thirsty. But it's just not the same. It doesn't have the same punch. It does, it's not Coke. It's, I don't know what we call that, but it's not Coke. That is exactly what the devil is trying to do to us, guys. He is trying to take a, a, a potent um, difference maker um, something unique, and he's trying to cut its legs out from under it. He's trying to water it down. He's trying to make it something that's not nearly as dynamic, not nearly as memorable, not nearly as strong as the original, as the thing that God intended you and me to be. He wants to convince you that your spirituality isn't important at all. He wants to convince you that what you're doing this morning is perfectly fine as long as you don't get serious about it on Tuesday. He wants you to believe that just working hard each day is enough. He wants you to believe that bringing a paycheck home is really all you're expected to do. He wants you to think that mowing the grass and keeping the house in good working order is really all it takes to be a good husband. He, he wants you to believe that going to a ball game once in a while and showing up for birthday parties makes you a good dad. He wants you to believe that, that um, it's, it's not a real deep thing, this being a dad. He wants you to believe that it's really not all that important, that you really don't have that important of a role, that it's really mom's thing. She's really the one that runs the house. He wants you compromised. He wants you diluted. He wants you to have strength. He also wants something else. He wants to indict you. He wants to indict you. He tells us that we're not worthy, we're not good enough, that we're too far gone, that we can't be forgiven, that we can't be the spiritual leader of our homes. Guys, I'm going to let you in on a little secret this morning. I'm going to say something to you that your wives are dying for me to say to you this morning. And if you think I'm lying to you, when you go home over dinner today, you say, honey, was Brett right? And you watch them shake their head and say yes. Your wives are dying for you to lead your home spiritually ladies yes yes they're dying for you to lead your home but the devil convinces you that you're not spiritual enough the devil convinces you that you've got enough on your plate as it is honey can't you take care of that honey can't you do that I, i've worked hard well she's worked hard too and i i'm not getting on you but i'm just saying it's the one thing that we tend to vacate. It's the one area where we say, you know, man, I don't know, God, if I'm capable. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I know how to be the spiritual leader. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do all this stuff that you want me to do. I, I, I can't do that. You know what happens to us? 
we, we get indicted by, by the devil. We, we buy this lie, and I, I'm going to be honest with you. I fight this as a husband. I fight this as a father. I fight this as a pastor. I fight this thing that, that um, you know, where the devil whispers to me, Brett, you're in over your head. You, you are in way over your head. You've never been here before. You don't know how to do that. You're not smart enough to do that. You're not spiritual enough to, to be able to pull that off. Brett, these people, they're not going to listen to you when you say that. Your shoulders aren't big enough to carry that weight. What do you think you're stepping into? Who do you think you are? What are you doing? Guys, I know you're not saying it out loud. I know you don't, you don't lay in bed at night with your wife and bare your soul and say these kind of things, but I know when you're driving home from work or sometimes when you're on a job or you're, you're driving somewhere or you're mowing the grass or whatever it is that you do, when your mind starts to wander and starts to think about your life, I know that there are those moments that you think to yourself, man, I hope nobody ever figures out that I have no idea what I'm doing. I hope nobody figures out how scared I am. I hope nobody figures out that I do not know what to say to my son. I hope nobody figures out that when my daughter starts dating, I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. He's out to indict us. He wants us doubting. He wants us second-guessing ourselves. He wants us thinking that we're not capable. He wants us thinking that we can't do it, that we aren't smart enough, that we aren't spiritual enough. That, that somehow God couldn't love someone like us, not, not someone who's made the mistakes that we've made. To set all this up, I read for you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I want to read to you the verses that precede that because it's here that Peter gives us the, the game plan, kind of the solution to the problem. Listen to these verses and see if you can hear um, what's going on. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Then he speaks to the younger uh, gentlemen. Verse 5, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. And then he speaks to everyone. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Two things emerged to me as I read that passage and as I was preparing for this. There are two things I want to draw out. Um, these will greatly aid us as we become men who are watching our blind side. First of all, uh, the first word I want to give to you this morning is the word humility. Humility. Each Tuesday um, for staff meeting, we have our staff meetings every Tuesday morning, and uh, one of my responsibilities in staff meeting is to come prepared with a leadership nugget, to come and, and to challenge our team with uh, something to kind of help them make it through the day and think about through the day and think about as they do their jobs and think about through the week. And so um, I always come with, with something that I can encourage our team with along those lines. Um, that running joke anymore is that, well, we know Brett's going to talk about humility. 
because that's what, that's what all my leadership nuggets seem to settle on is this idea of humility, and here's why. Uh, if, you, if you pay attention to what's going on around here, we're doing pretty good. There's a lot of great things that are happening at this church. There's an awful lot of reason for us to you know, celebrate and pat ourselves on the back and say we're wonderful and we're great. And there's a lot of reason for a, a pastor or a team leader or a person on the team to think, man, we're really doing good things, and it's all because of us. And I tell our team all the time, hey, look, nobody blames you when it goes south. Nobody blames you when it's bad. Don't take credit for the good stuff either, and that's for me too. Because what the devil wants us to do is he wants us to take credit. He wants us to get puffed up. He wants us to think that we're somehow responsible for the successes that we're having. And so a lot of the leadership nuggets are, are along the lines of, guys, we need to stay humble. We need to keep our head down. We need to work hard. We need to pray like we've never prayed. We can't buy into all this stuff. Yes, great things are happening. Yes, we got more people coming than we've ever had at this church. We got more people, more money. Our church is, is, is more financially sound right now, I think, than it's ever been in its history. We're, we're on the verge of doing amazing, wonderful things. We're winning people to Christ. There's an awful, as Bill Heibel says, everything is up and to the right. You know, everything is up and to the right for us. But I'm constantly telling our team, guys, do not get cocky. Do not get to the place where you think we are responsible for this. God is driving this boat. And we've got to stay humble. Jim Collins is a, a, a leadership author. He, his forte is to study businesses and to write what he observes about businesses. He's kind of a clinician and a, he, he's a... He's almost a, has his own kind of laboratory of sorts. And he's written a couple of books that you might be familiar with. One a lot of people have heard about is a book called Good to Great. It's a book about companies who went from good to great. How did they get to be these great, wonderful companies that, that have a wonderful bottom line and their shareholders are happy and, and everything's good? And he, he talks about how those companies got that way. He, his last book was a book called How the Mighty Fall. And it was a book about companies that were once great companies who have fallen on hard times, who have lost their market share, who, who some of them have declared bankruptcy and gone out of business. And he, he said in studying those companies, companies like Rubbermaid, companies like Circuit City, companies that, that at one time were the end-all, be-all companies, that they, they were on top of the world, and then all of a sudden they fell. How did they fall? And he said, we've identified five things, five phases that a company goes through when they begin to decline. Do you know what the number one phase is? Something he called hubris. You know what hubris is? Hubris is a horrible, terrible lack of humility. It's thinking highly, more highly of yourself than you ought to think. How many times have you seen an undefeated team come into a championship game, flying high, kind of cocky, feeling pretty good about themselves, and then get beat? I, and preparing for this, the, the, the one big one that I would think is on all of your minds right now, I didn't even think of, and I had someone remind me on the way out, it was the Patriots. 18-0. and 0, Ran the table. Nobody beat them all year. And then they played the New York Giants in the Super Bowl, a prohibitive underdog, and they got beat. I watched it happen to the you know, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, running Rebels. In 1990, they, they made it all the way through the NCAA tournament, and they came to the end to play the championship game against the Duke Blue Devils. 
And I don't know if you remember what happened in that first game where they met, but it was the most lopsided championship game of all time. It was uh, something like 106 or 7 or 8 to 77 or 8 or something like that. It was huge discrepancy. I mean, they ran them out of the gym. The following year, the, the UNLV running Rebels were just as good. They were probably, a lot of, by a lot of people's estimations, were even better because most of those guys stayed in school and, and they, they had an extra year of, of uh, experience and they just were a good, solid team. They ran the table. Uh, they come into that final game, and who do you think they run into? The Duke Blue Devils, 1991. And that's the game when the Duke Blue Devils took on the UNLV running Rebels, and, and Coach Krzyzewski said it was a privilege and a, and a pleasure to coach in that game. There were something like 25 or 26 lead changes in that game. A, a wonderful game. It came down to the very end, and, and a, this is a game that everyone thought UNLV was going to win. Duke won the game 79-77 in what's been considered by many one of the great championship games of all time. I grew up in northern Kentucky. I'm a Reds fan, and here lately we haven't had a whole lot to cheer about. But in 1990, the, the Cincinnati Reds went what we call wire to wire. They started in first place. They never relinquished the lead. They finished in first place. Didn't matter, though, because on the American League side was this team called the Oakland A's. And the Oakland A's had the best of everything. They had the best pitchers. They had the, the greatest base dealer of all time. They had a fantastic coach in Tony La Russa. And they also had a couple of guys called the Bash Brothers, which we know were on steroids now. We know that. But, but no one knew that at the time, and they were hitting home runs like, you know, it was nothing. And the great and mighty Oakland A's came into the World Series to play the piddly little Cincinnati Reds, and nobody gave the Reds a shot. And the A's were brash, and they bragged a lot, and, and, and they, they bought their own press, and they believed their own hype, and they came into the World Series and promptly got swept by the Cincinnati Reds in the 1990 World Series. Hubris. A lack of humility. Pride that wells up in people to make them think things about themselves that they ought not. I heard someone say recently, humility isn't thinking more about yourself or less about yourself. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. Isn't that good? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul describes what humility is. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In recent months, we have seen two of America's great um, American sporting athletes, uh, considered heroes by some, come under scrutiny for uh, indiscretions and, and bad decisions, uh, most notably of a sexual nature, and I'm talking about Tiger Woods and Ben Roethlisberger. And, and I'm not here to, to pile on those guys. I'm not here to, to add any more commentary. Goodness knows there's been enough commentary on those two guys for, for all of us for all time. But as they have now begun the process of repairing their image and as they've now begun the process of trying to rejoin their sport and to try and play their sport with some semblance of dignity and some um, essence of being able to get past this mistake that they've made, 
they've started to give interviews. Uh, Tiger gave national TV interviews and Ben Roethlisberger more to the local Pittsburgh media. But in both of those interviews, it was interesting as they began to apologize for their behavior. They both said the same thing. If you really listen carefully to their, their apologies, what they said was, I got puffed up. I came to believe my own hype and my own press, and I thought I was better than other people. And I felt a sense of entitlement, and I felt bulletproof, and I felt like I couldn't fall. Guys, if you think that you're not ever going to fall, if you think it can't happen to you, then your blind side is wide open. If you think that you've got this covered, if you think there's no way you could, you could ever be a Tiger Woods or a Ben Roethlisberger or a Bernie Madoff or anybody else, your blind side is uncovered. Listen to how Peter says it. Uh, he says, men, older men, younger men, you need to be humble. And then he comes behind that and he says, you need to stay focused. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Understand, gentlemen, that your successes are not your successes. They are the, the responsibility of God. That your job, your health, the money you make, your family, those are not things that are just yours. Those are things that God ultimately is responsible to take care of for you. Peter says to him, cast them on God because he cares for you. Guys, this is what I want you to hear this morning. Because this is, I think that guys just have a hard time with this concept. God loves you. He loves you. He cares for you. You're the apple of his eye. You, you matter greatly to God. What you're doing matters to God. God wants you to be successful. He wants you to be a good dad. He wants you to be a good husband and a good father and a, and a good worker, a good boss, employee. Dad, you got a big job. There's a lot resting on your shoulders. There's a lot at stake. It would be easy to get overwhelmed. It would be easy to think that you aren't all that important. It would be easy to think that the uh, enemy is right when he tells you that you're not good enough. It would be easy to think that he's right when he tells you that you don't matter, that you don't measure up. You have to watch your blind side. You're the quarterback. And there's a huge adversary. He's tenacious. He will not relent. He will not give up. His goal is to take you down. I want to leave you with this thought. In Matthew chapter 4, we are told the story about Jesus coming under temptation when Satan takes him off and tempts him three different times. And I believe when the Bible says that Jesus was tempted, I believe that's temptation, temptation meaning he wanted to do it. I don't think that's just some word that's casually thrown around by the writers of Scripture I think when you read Jesus was tempted, that's a real deal. And you, you read all about the temptations of Jesus and how uh, the devil was trying to, to really get him to bow down and just give up his authority. And each time, Jesus refutes the devil with the word of God and with Scripture, which is a lesson for all of us. But at the end of Matthew, what we find is it says then the devil, it says that he resisted the devil and the devil left him. It says that he said, get thee behind me, Satan, and then the devil was gone. I prefer the, the account in Luke chapter 4 because Luke gives us something that Matthew's account doesn't give us. We get the same story, the exact same story, but at the end, listen to how the, the writer of Luke 
sums up what happens with Jesus. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, what is that last part? Until an opportune time. What's that mean? That means he's coming back. That means he will not relent. That means he will not give up. That means there is a target on your back and on your chest. That means that he is the prowling lion who wants to devour you. And God loves you. And God cares about you. And God cares about your family. And he cares about how you're doing. So when you're driving home from work and you feel lost, and you feel like you don't measure up, and you feel like you can't do it anymore, and you feel like nobody understands, and you're asking all these questions, cast your cares on him, because he cares for you. Our adversary wants to devour us. He is in relentless pursuit, and he, you may resist him today, and he may flee, and he might wait for a more opportune time. Protect your blind side. Let's pray together. Father, I give you thanks for the men in this room, for what they mean to their families, for what they mean to our church, for what they mean to our culture and our society. And I pray, Father, that the great vision that you've given each one of these men to be godly men, you would enable them to fulfill that vision. I pray that you would empower them this morning as they leave this place to be better than they were coming in, not because they've been beat up, not because... Uh, they're so much better, but because they're leaning more heavily into you. God, we cannot take a step without your help. We cannot breathe a breath without your helping us do it. We are completely and utterly dependent on you. And so, Father, my prayer for the men in this room is that they would feel your presence like never before, that they would feel drawn to you each day, that they would be able to overcome the temptation that faces them every single day of their life that they would not be deluded, that they would not feel like they don't measure up and that they aren't good enough, but that they would see that you have called them and given them a divine purpose. And that when you do that, you intend for them to fulfill it. And that you will strengthen them to that end. God, we love you. We humbly worship you in this moment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.